Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 8. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defect for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let me pray for us. Father, we love your word. It instructs us, it guides us. Father, would you instruct us and guide us this morning as we sit under the instruction of your word? Would it uh, bury down deep into our hearts that it would produce fruit in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is John, and I'm on staff here. And uh, today, we're talking about conflict. Conflict. And specifically, conflict in the church. Conflict among us. Look at the person next to you. Conflict with that person. Brother in Christ versus brother in Christ. Sister in Christ versus sister in Christ. And I know a little bit about this because... I grew up in a big church in South London, and if you know anything about South London, that says enough. But I grew up in a big church, and and this big church, we gathered in one of two large warehouses with a parking lot in the middle. So there was our church building, there was a parking lot in the middle, and then there was another empty warehouse. And so Sunday mornings, we used the parking lot. As you can imagine, there were significantly more people in the church than there were parking spaces. Need I say any more? I don't need to tell you that it was like the Hunger Games, do I? It was like Costco in Richmond on a Saturday with a toilet paper shortage. And if you think that's bad, one day we found out that another church was moving into the other warehouse. So we had to share a parking lot that already didn't have enough Spaces. Worse still, this church was called a Mountain of Fire and Miracles Church. Unfortunately, they came with more fire than miracles. We had parking stewards. They had parking stewards. Our parking stewards would fight with their parking stewards. And then the time for the gathering would come. We all would go and we'd all pray for the other church, <laughs> confessing our sins. Church conflict happens. It happens, doesn't it? It's a topic that I'm sure that for some of us will bring to mind examples, maybe even present examples, of where we have had issues with people in the church. A brother in Christ who's, who's offended us. A sister in Christ who has, has wronged us. And my guess is, if you haven't had a grievance with anyone in the church, there's only two reasons for it. Number one is, you're new here. If that's you, Welcome. You're thinking to yourself, these people are so lovely. And they could never offend me. Just, just give it a while. 
The second reason you've not had a grievance already in church is because you've distanced yourself from the community. Maybe, maybe you come on a Sunday, but for whatever reason, you haven't really integrated yourself into the community. And maybe you've done that because you've previously integrated yourself into the church community and you've got hurt. Conflict in the church, it happens. I'm not trying to say that it only happens in the church, but I'm saying that it does happen in the church. Just like any other community of people, there is the potential to get hurt. And maybe the reason we feel like sometimes in church, don't we, that that it feels like it hurts more when there's conflict in the church is because we know that we're not supposed to be like every other community of people. We have a hope, don't we, that, that we will be different. When it comes to conflict, we have a hope, don't we, that the parking lots of churches don't look like the parking lots of Costco. And this is what our text addresses today. But as I begin, let me give us just a bit of context of where we've been uh, in the story. So when we read Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, we've noted, haven't we, over the weeks that Paul is responding to a report that he has heard about the church in Corinth. He's heard lots of things, but in the section that we're in, in the book, he's addressing specific problems that that he's heard about. And so last chapter, chapter 5, we heard about a man who was living in sexual immorality, and Paul addresses the problem. Now now in chapter 6, in this chapter, he's responding to a different issue. Apparently, there has been some sort of conflict in the church between two congregants. And while we're not given specifics about about what the details are about this conflict, the language seems to suggest that it's a financial conflict. Finance is involved. Maybe maybe two congregants have got into business with one another, or maybe one of them's borrowed money from another. But whatever has happened, it's gone horribly wrong. The conflict... The dispute has escalated to the point where brother has taken brother to court. On Sunday, they were sharing communion with one another. On Monday, they're all dressed in the same suits, giving testimony against one another. It's worth noting, just as a bit of context for Corinth, that this seems to be the way in Corinth. This is the culture of Corinth. They love a good lawsuit. New Testament scholar Douglas Moo, he says that that going to court in Corinth was like a spectator sport. It was like Judge Judy, right? Lawsuits were part of the culture of Corinth. It was just another manifestation of what we've been hearing about this competitive, dog-eat-dog city that they live in. I actually read this uh, this week a great quote from a, a third century author. His name is Athenaeus. And it gives us an insight into the speed at which a dispute can become a lawsuit. He says, After dinner drinks comes mockery. After mockery, filthy insults. After insult, a lawsuit. After the lawsuit, a verdict. After the verdict, shackles the stocks and a fine. You see the speed at which a dinner party becomes a court case. This is the culture in Corinth. And this is Paul's response to what the church is doing. He says this in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? 
He's saying, when, when you have arguments among you, when you have disagreements among you, how dare you go to the Roman law courts instead of handling your business among you? And at this point in the sermon, we need to pause. And we need to figure out what Paul is actually saying. Because let me tell you, it's really important we know what he's not saying. This is the sort of verse that can be misused and abused with disastrous consequences. Unfortunately, history tells us that a text like this can be misused and abused with disastrous consequences. So let's be clear from the outset, two things that Paul is not saying in this verse, in these verses. The first thing that he is not saying is this. He is not saying that all law courts outside of the church are completely evil and pointless. Now, by all accounts, Roman law courts were awful. They were corrupt, they were unjust, they were partial. But he's not saying that there's no place for them. In fact, we, we know this because in Acts 25, Paul himself appeals to the Roman law courts. And so it can't be that there's no place for them. Also, when we read the New Testament, First Peter and other places, we're reminded that God sovereignly establishes the authorities and uses them to execute judgment on his behalf. So it can't be that they are completely evil and unjust all the time. So the first thing that we can't do with this text, to be clear, is we can't use it to dismiss the law courts of our nation. However partial we think they may or may not be, that is not what this text is saying. Okay, that's the first thing it's not saying. The second thing it's not saying is that the church should in some way function as a court of law. As if criminal activity should go to the elders first and not to the police. Now this is unfortunately worth saying. Because there is a potential to abstract this verse from the context it's in and to build a very dangerous culture in a church community. And unfortunately, history has proven that out. We have to read this text right. We have to be careful with how we handle the Word of God. The point here is that these non-criminal disputes should have never escalated to the point of lawsuits. Not that criminal lawsuits should be handled in the church. Let me say that again to be clear. What we're dealing with in this text are non-criminal disputes that should have never escalated to the point of lawsuits, not criminal actions that should be settled in the church. As an aside, here at Christ City, all of our procedures and our policies, governance procedures and policies, from kids' ministry to staff and eldership, all ensure that criminal activity is taken to the authorities. That's worth saying. Christ City, this text should not be used to dissuade or to shame anyone from taking rightful legal action against criminal activity in the church. So that's what it's not saying. So what is actually going on here? Well, I think simply Paul is challenging the church in how they are to handle conflict. He's challenging them in how they are to navigate conflict among one another. And he's going to do this in two ways. And here's the two ways. He's going to remind them of who they are 
and who they're called to be, and we might call this reminding them of the story in which they are a part, and he's going to show them what life should look like if they were to actually live out of this story. And so these are our two points this morning. Long intro, so only two points. One, the story we live by, and two, life in this story. The story we live by and life in this story. Okay, point one, the story we live by. Um, as most of you know, I have two young boys, three-year-old and a one-year-old. And one of the things you find out pretty quickly when you become a parent is that not all kids' books are created equal. There are some terrible kids' books, absolutely terrible ones. You'd think, wouldn't you, that writing a kids' book would be like really easy? Apparently, there's thousands of people that find it really difficult. I'm not being harsh. It's just a fact. We know that to be true. It's just truth-telling. The worst is when your kid loves a terrible book, and you're like, oh. And when I say terrible, I don't just mean badly written or badly illustrated, because, you know, there are those. But I mean terrible books. Books that teach lies. Books that celebrate sin. Books that don't in any way correspond to the way things actually are or the way things ought to be. It's important, isn't it, not just as parents, but as people, as Christians, that we're discerning. Because when we read a book, what we're actually reading is the author's worldview. You know, they're, they're telling a story, but they're also assuming the story into which their story is placed about how things are and how things ought to be, about who you are and who you ought to be. And it's as true for adult books as it is for kids' books. We know this, right? The books we read, the the shows we watch, the podcasts we listen to, they're all telling us a story, and these stories are proposing for us the truth of the world, the truth of who you are, the truth of reality, the truth of who you're called to be. And when we read and when we listen and when we watch and when we consume, these stories, they shape us, don't they? They shape us. They direct us. They propose truths about our lives, who we think we are, where we came from, where we're going, identity, meaning, purpose. They're all defined by the story that we believe that we are living in. In his book, After Virtue, Alistair McIntyre famously said this. He said, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part? I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part? Now, this is a great quote from McIntyre, but the point here is not that we can't do anything until we figure out like the meta-narrative of the world, right? We can't live and move and have our being until we figure out what story we're a part of. No, no, no. The point here is almost the opposite direction of that. The point is that everything we do is already being directed by the story we believe to be true. Everything we do is already being directed by the story we believe to be true about the world. How you spend your money, how you spend your time, what you prioritize, who you prioritize, what we cling to, what we're willing to sacrifice, how we respond to success or failure, to compliments or insults, 
how we navigate conflict. Everything we do is being directed by the story that we believe to be true. And what the Apostle Paul does here is he shows the church in Corinthians that the way that they are living, everything they do, exposes the fact that they have forgotten the true story. They have forgotten who they are and who they are called to be. The way they are leading their lives shows them that they are living the Corinthian narrative and not the Christian narrative. Their identity and their purpose, their response to conflict is being shaped not by the story of Scripture, but by the story of their city. Let's look at our text again. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to trial trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? So the church has been going to the Roman law courts to settle their differences, and Paul responds with two questions that start with, do you not know? Implication, they should know this. Do you not know that the saints are to judge the world? Do you not know that we, the saints, the saints are to judge angels? Now, we can read this and be like, yeah, yeah, totally, Paul, yeah. But just for the sake of everyone else, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> Judging angels. Oh, okay, yeah. No, Paul, we didn't know that. Do you not know? Huh? Just me then. <laughs> so what is he talking about? What is he talking about? Well, he's simply invoking the story of Scripture. He's reminding them of a future reality that has been revealed to them in Scripture. He's talking about an incredible truth, an incredible truth, that when we become Christians, we're called to participate in the kingdom of God, a kingdom that will last forever. This is the story of Scripture, and Christ says, this is the story. That's what Scripture proposes to be. See, our story begins with God creating everything. It begins with God creating humanity specifically to bear his image in the world and to participate in the rule and reign of creation. But our story also says that we rebelled against God because guess what? We wanted to rule and reign without him. And as a result, we were cut off from the very life of God. We rebelled against the life giver. But then we know, don't we, that our story also says that God called a man called Abraham to father a nation that would be a light to the nations, that God would reveal himself to a people and then reveal himself through this people, and that he would reveal himself ultimately in sending his son. And this son would make a way for this rebellious humanity, to be reconciled to God. This is our story. Jesus came to bear the curse of sin upon his shoulders and to raise to new life in order to restore the image of God in humanity. 
That is our story. And when we accept that, when we believe that, we participate in the true story. But, but it doesn't just stop there. You know, we're caught in the middle of this story. Our story doesn't just propose what has happened and what is true of the present, but it also shows us what will happen. It says that this Jesus, who came the first time to save sinners, is coming a second time to judge the living and the dead. And he is coming to establish his kingdom, to consummate his kingdom forevermore. But it also says, if you look and you read, that in some mysterious, incredible unfathomable way that we, the saints, will participate in this eternal kingdom. And that includes, apparently, judging the world and angels. This is the story. This is what has been revealed to us in Scripture as the story in which we find ourselves. Maybe you're a Christian here today and you're, you're thinking to yourself, that's just so great, John. I know this and I love this and I'm living into this and, and my life is shaped by this and my hope is found in this and my actions are directed by this. And if that's you, praise God for you. Praise God for you. That's the hope of the Christian life, that we participate in this story and our lives are shaped and directed by this. But maybe you're a Christian today and you're thinking, man, I really forgot this. I forgot this. Or I knew this, but maybe I forgot this. Or I know this, but I really struggle to believe this. This is like lofty concepts, John. As I've been preparing for this sermon, I thought to myself, why, why do I forget this occasionally? And why do I struggle to believe this occasionally? And you know, there's only really one answer. There's only really one answer as to why we struggle to believe this story and why we struggle to remember it. It's because we've bought into another story. It's because we've bought into another story. We've believed who the world says that we are and not who God says that we are. We've believed who the world says we should be, what we ought to do, what our future is, all of those things, as opposed to listening to what God says about who we are, what we're called to do, and what our future is. We get caught up, don't we, in the narratives of our city and not in the narrative of the Bible. There's a guy called Randy Alcorn. He wrote this huge book on heaven. It's a great book. And in it, he says this, he says, nothing demonstrates how far we've distanced ourselves from our biblical calling, like our lack of knowledge about our destiny to rule the earth. That's, that's a crazy quote. Nothing demonstrates how far we've distanced ourselves from our biblical calling, like our lack of knowledge about our destiny to rule the earth. Paul says, do you not know and when we say, no, we didn't, we've, we've distanced ourselves from our biblical calling. We're following some other narrative, some other story. We've accepted a smaller view of who we are, ironically, in our arrogance, than what God has for us. Christ City, are we being shaped by the biblical narrative? Are we being directed by 
the biblical story, by our biblical destiny. You know, the reason we read our Bibles is for that very reason. It's the reason we read them personally. It's the reason we read them to our kids. It's the reason we, we gather here and read together. It's the reason we do it in community groups. It's the reason we, we get the Bible out when we're going through conflict. It's because it reminds us of the story in which we're participating and therefore how we ought to live. And so that's the story we live by. And let's get to how then ought we to live. What does life look like in this story. What does life look like in this story? Number two, life in this story. Let's read from verse five. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, has reminded them of the story. Do you not know? He's reminded them of the story that they are a part, who they are, who they're called to be. And now he wants to challenge them with what their lives should look like in light of this reality by exposing what their lives actually do look like, right? Let's look at the challenges. The first challenge we see in verse 5. Let me read it again. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? You know, Paul's expectation of a community that are living according to the, the story of Scripture is that they would be a people of reconciliation and not of retribution. That they would be a people of reconciliation and not of retribution that they would, among themselves, have the wisdom. We've talked about wisdom throughout 1 Corinthians, right? They think they have it. Paul says they don't. That they would have the wisdom to be able to navigate disputes with an aim at reconciliation and not at retribution. And the reason is because that is who they are. They are a people of reconciliation. The reason we, Christ City, prioritize reconciliation is because we are a people of reconciliation. Our identity is one of reconciliation. We are a reconciled people. You see, when it comes to conflicts, God didn't give us a strategy. He sent a person. He sent a person. He sent his son to make a way for us to experience reconciliation with God to solve the ultimate conflict in our lives. And he gave us his spirit in order that we might be empowered to be ministers of reconciliation. It's funny, that, that verse, being ministers of reconciliation, comes from Paul's second letter to the same church. He says this in 2 Corinthians 5 from 17. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Notice identity. This is the story we're a part of. This is who you are. The old is gone. The new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. This is who we are. We are a reconciled people because Christ has reconciled us to God. And look, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we, Christ City, are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Christ City, if the gospel is at work in us, if we are a gospel people, then it will be at work through us. If we are a reconciled people, we will be a people of reconciliation. The reason why disputes can be handled in the church is because we are a people who have received much grace. And therefore, we're a people who can extend much grace. We're a people who have received mercy and forgiveness and therefore can extend much mercy and forgiveness. We're a people who have received love before we deserved it. And so, Christ City, we can love the undeserving. That is what the Christian life looks like. The gospel that is at work in us is also at work through us as we seek reconciliation, not retribution. The second challenge that we see is in verse 7. Let's read from verse 7. To, the laws, uh, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Now we have to know that this is radical. This is radical stuff. This is antithetical to what the world teaches. This is antithetical to what Corinth taught. This is exact opposite of what the world teaches us today, what Vancouver teaches us. Paul proposes that for the Christian who live out of the story of Scripture, it is preferable, it is preferable to suffer wrong than it is to cause suffering. That's radical. It is preferable to be defrauded than to defraud. Now, again, what Paul is not saying is that we want to be defrauded or hurt or suffer. This is not about celebrating victimhood in any way. But it's saying that when there's a conflict between two people, when there is the potential to hurt or be hurt, we often conceive of it as either hurt or be hurt. Either hurt or be hurt. Eat or be eaten. We've all heard the saying, haven't we? Hurt people hurt people. You know that? It's like cutesy saying. Hurt people hurt people. It's like a truism. Hurt people hurt people. It makes sense, doesn't it? But here's the problem. We're all hurt people. And therefore, we all hurt people. And that creates, doesn't it, a, a spiral, a cycle of retribution. We're hurt, so we hurt others. And they're hurt, so they hurt others. But God, he proposes another way. He reveals to us in Scripture another way. When Jesus comes and he teaches on the Sermon on the Mount, some of his most outlandish teaching is when someone strikes you on the cheek, what do you do? You give them the other cheek. And we go, yeah, but when someone strikes you on the cheek, 
it will be better to give them the other cheek than to strike them back. When someone sues you and takes your shirt, what does he say? Hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to walk a mile, he says, go with them two miles. The apostles, they summarize this teaching. Do not repay evil for evil, but repay evil for good. And Christ says, Jesus didn't just teach this to us. He didn't come and say, here's, here's how you should do it. Because actually, it's really, really hard. This is like the hardest teaching that we have, the most countercultural teaching that we have. It's really hard, but Jesus didn't just teach it. He lived it for us when he experienced the ultimate hurt, the ultimate wrongdoing, the ultimate injustice. And First Peter, it says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ disputes can be handled in the church because Jesus suffered the ultimate wrong on your behalf. He broke the cycle of hurt people, hurt people. And we follow him and are empowered by him to break the cycle among us of hurting and hurting and hurting. And like him, the way we can do that is because we entrust ourselves to the bigger story, to the better story, to the true story where there is a judge who judges justly. Christ City, this is what Christian life should look like. This is what Christian community should look like. This is what it looks like when we collectively live out the story of Scripture. We are a reconciled people, and we have a ministry of reconciliation, and we entrust ourselves to a God who is a just judge, who broke the cycle of hurt people hurting people by being judged in our place. That's our story. Let me end with this. Funnily enough, as I've been preparing for this sermon, just this week I have faced conflict. It's not an in-church conflict. Don't look around. But it is a conflict, a potential conflict. We have neighbors that live beneath us, and um, they've been sending me angry texts about how loud my very unloud kids have been. There's a great quote from G.K. Chesterton. He says, the reason the Bible says um, love your neighbor and love your enemy is because most of the time they're the same person. Um, the truth is, I, their frustration is really understandable. Like, I wouldn't want to live underneath my kids. But I've been tired. My family's been sick. And as you can imagine, my first response waking up to that message is, was not filled full of you know, spiritual fruit. When I got the message, I started writing a response. And I did it in front of Sarah, which was a bad idea. She could see the, the rage in my thumbs. <laughs> and in classic Sarah fashion, who has heard me preparing this preach, she stopped me with a line. She said, John, what story are you going to live out of? I said, the Godfather? <laughs> what story are we living out of? 
I didn't send the message. We're trying to change. Christ City, the church, is a place where you can get hurt. It's a place. It's likely if you get involved in this community, you're going to get hurt. But it's also the place of a better story. A place of a story, a, a story of justice, but also of mercy. A story of judgment, but also of forgiveness and grace. It's a better story, and it's the true story.